This episode of Science of Grief contains strong language. I'm your host, Natasha T. Miller, and this is The Science of Grief, a podcast about the stories, science, and solutions around grief and mental health. First, a quick note. While this podcast is meant to make space for sharing stories and solutions, it is not a substitute for professional help. If you have mental health concerns and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. If you are in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255. In today's episode, we're talking about setting boundaries while grieving, what it means, why it's important, and how to communicate those boundaries to other people. Later on, I'll talk with Bonnie Wheeler, a longtime mental health practitioner. But first, I get to speak with Patrick Vaughn. Patrick Vaughn is a mediator at Science Gallery Detroit, one of those young adults who get to work with us on the Science of Grief podcast. Patrick had the pleasure of interviewing Maria Lo Cicero and hearing a story about how she lost her mother at 19 years old and also how she found art as a form of therapy. Hey, Patrick, how are you? Good. How are you doing, Natasha? I'm pretty good. Thank you. Uh, So, Patrick, you've been working um, on the Science of Grief podcast with us, and you've done a few different interviews. Today, we're talking about Maria and her story. So tell us a little bit about what you learned from talking with Maria. Yeah. So I guess, first of all, Maria is just a very bubbly, personable person. And what really blew me away when I was speaking with her is she has very good boundaries. She knows what she needs emotionally when she's going through something very difficult. And she's able to set those firm, healthy boundaries with other individuals like her parents, her cousins, her friends. And then she was able to transform grief, the loss of her mother, into something beautiful, whether that's through her artwork, uh, through her music. And then Also, just being able to give advice to friends about, like, her own experiences and when they're going through their own forms of loss. A couple years ago now, it was actually the two-year anniversary um, last month. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother had a sudden heart attack. She was playing darts with a friend at home, and... So I was in my dorm room, just chilling. I was actually watching an episode of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver and folding my laundry. And I got a call uh, from my mom's partner, Julie, uh, saying something just happened. Um, Your Mm -hmm. mom collapsed. You need to get to the hospital. Like, call your sister and get to the hospital. And so I called my sister and I picked her up um, and we went to the hospital and we were the first two there, kind of like on the scene. She like she was with a friend who had like performed CPR and called an ambulance, but he wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, she went into surgery to deal with the heart attack. And my sister and I were there by ourselves for a little while, all the time, like talking to family on the phone and texting everyone. And eventually, family friends started coming to like keep us company and stuff in the mm-hmm. hospital. And everything went well, uh, surgery wise. Basically, we were told. I was also in contact with my professors because this was midterm season too. And and I was like, I had a paper due the next day. And so I was emailing my professor. I was like, hello, I will not be doing this. I am currently at the hospital. 
And she was like, that's fine. Like, take the time. Like, <laughs> yeah. you, you don't need to do it. Don't turn it in. But basically the doctor came back. They were like, this was wrong. This was wrong. Like she had a full like blockage in like one or your valve or whatever it's called. I don't know the, I don't know the exact uh, terminology anymore, but basically the assessment was that it had been a pretty bad heart attack and she was in a coma, but as long as she woke up within the next two days, things were going to be fine. Okay. Um, and so basically then the day passed and I like went back to school. My sister went back to school um, just to kind of have a sense of normalcy because it wasn't like we could do anything by waiting at the hospital. Mm-hmm. And we were just, we were just waiting for her to wake up because every doctor was like, she's going to wake up and it's going to be fine. And mm-hmm. you know, there might be some damage that has to be worked out with therapy, but like should be fine. Everything looks good. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a class and I got a call from my aunt basically just saying like, can you, can you come? And I was like, Oh shit. And, uh, can I swear? Is it okay if I swear? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> I like had a pit in my stomach and I was like, oh no, 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 no. Because like, you can't, you can't like, she wasn't yeah. going to tell me on the phone, but also like, mm-hmm. like you knew from a phone call. when, when Yeah, just like instant like dread. You're like, oh no. Like, oh no, what happened? And so then I got there and I went to the room and um, my aunt and Julie were there in the room with the doctor. And basically what had happened is um, they did a CT scan and mm-hmm. just showed that her brain had, even though we thought that it was fine because she had gotten CPR like right away, her brain had just been deprived of oxygen for too long. And so she was basically brain dead for all intents and purposes and keeping her on life support wasn't going to do anything because she was never going to wake up. And so I screamed um, and I ran away, but I think the worst part was then my sister got the same call from my aunt and she arrived probably about 10 minutes after me. And so I was in like the waiting room with my aunt and Julia, like comforting me. And then Mm -hmm. she walked into the waiting room and like looked at me and said like, what's going on? And then Julie told her and I had to watch her, my little sister had the exact same reaction that I just did of screaming Mm -hmm. and falling over. And then sort of began the next four days or so. Like um, this, like she had her heart attack on a Monday. We were actually supposed to like, we were actually supposed to go to the bank on like Tuesday, but I had texted her and I was like, are we still on the bank? And she's like, no, I feel a little sick. Um, let's, let's schedule for Wednesday. And I was like, okay, like, does, does this time work? And then she never wrote back. And, um, but then so that was Monday and then Tuesday and Wednesday we were waiting for her to wake up from the coma. And then Thursday is when she actually passed. And so we were lucky enough that we had the option to keep her on life support um, long enough for family and friends to come in from out of town from Chicago and like Lansing to come and see her and say goodbye and, and, you know, have as many people as possible get their closure um, yeah. but then on, uh, Thursday, the 21st, um, she passed away and like, it, it sucked like shitty, yeah. shitty, shitty. I mean, I mean like that's putting it lightly, I guess. 
And Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's um, on the on the one on the one hand, obviously, so sad, so traumatic. Um, yeah, she was very she was very young. Um, she was fifty two. And and also, let me take a moment to make an aside that women's heart attacks in women look very different from heart attacks in men, and that is a very important thing that I feel like people should know about. That like for women, it's often like feeling sick or like feeling nauseous or stuff. We don't get the the chest pain, chest pain, and the arm numbness and the smell of toast or something. Maybe that strokes. But so it, it just kind of like came out of nowhere, and so in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, very sudden, very unexpected, very very jarring, and very. And, and just terrible, obviously. But on the other hand, some, like something that I'm grateful for is that we were able to have as many people as we did like get their closure. Yeah. And so in some ways, that's, you know, a silver lining. Mm-hmm. But uh, overall, just a really shitty, shitty time. So moving then, I guess, a little bit into the future. So then your mother had passed and then you're in the state where maybe you don't have to like compartmentalize your emotions um, because like the chaos has sort of died down. What was that like for you? Like when you finally had a chance to like slow down and like fully process it all? It was actually um, interesting uh, because so basically she passed and we had to get a funeral together very quickly. So she passed on a Thursday and we had to do it by Tuesday. And I have to say the funeral was very beautiful. She was a high school Spanish teacher and we had like, Mm -hmm. we filled the church that we were in. Like there were like 500 people there, which was crazy. Like pre-COVID, but like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, pre-COVID. When you can shake hands and be in the same room. (laughs) I know. And that was really overwhelming in a way too, because Mm -hmm. it, it it felt, it felt like almost like a wedding, like in the sense that like everybody wanted to talk to us. Like we were very much so the celebrities of the funeral, but also it was very overwhelming to like constantly, like people that I hadn't seen in like 10 years were like coming up to me and like talking to me. And I was like, oh my God. That was overwhelming, but it was also beautiful. And um, it was nice to have a lot of family. We had a lot of family and friends come and stay with us. So basically my parents got divorced when I was little. This is also gonna be like a lot of information. So like- Okay, but, I'm ready. Okay, in. so um, <laughs> my parents divorced when I was little, like six or seven. And that was because my mom realized that she was gay. And when that happened, like she was a high school, she was a high school Spanish teacher. And when that happened, there was a girl in her class who like needed additional help in Spanish. And my mom was always like, you know, come see me after class and we can like go over these things because you're not getting these concepts and I just want to help you succeed. Mm -hmm. And this girl was always like, no, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And eventually my mom was like, what's going on? And basically the reason was that this girl's parents didn't want her being alone in a room with my mother because she was a lesbian. And to make matters worse, the school that my mom was working for kind of backed the parents on that. And it was like, sorry, what? <laughs> like, so terrible. And so my mom was like, really just kind of like slapped in the face by her. Yeah. 
But ever since that year, my mom then every Halloween dressed up as a famous uh, gay person from history as a vampire. And so she did Oscar Wilde as a vampire. She did Liberace as a vampire. She did Noel Coward as a vampire. She did Rachel Maddow, George Takei as Sulu from uh, Star Trek. She did um, J. Edgar Hoover. So I feel like that, I don't know if resilience is the right word, but to take something that like is just so hurtful and to instead like use it as a spring, as a springboard for this pride and this, and this, and this fun tradition. And like, she would teach her, she would teach her students, like, like she would put up facts about like Noel Coward or, or Oscar Wilde around her classroom and stuff. And so when I think about just the kind of person that my mom was, who was able to forgive easily and love openly and fully. I'm reminded of that story and like just that that sense of her personality and the nerdiness of <laughs> of that too. And that makes me really happy. So yeah, I that I I, I feel like that is, I kind of went off on a tangent there, but No, felt, no. But so that was that was overwhelming, but it was also beautiful and um but actually, the reason <laughs> this feels like so weird to say, the reason that um, we had to get it done so quickly is that um, my boyfriend at the time was studying abroad in New Zealand, and I had had plans to go visit him before this all happened. <laughs> and so it had to be done by like Tuesday. So it was the 21st, and then the 21st, and then what was it? 22nd is Friday, 23rd, 24th, 25th, 26th is when we had the funeral. And then on like February 28th, I was getting on a plane to fly to New Zealand. Oh my God. Um, because I, cause I, I, it was also a stressful thing. Cause I was like, should I cancel my trip? Like, like, what do I do? Yeah. And basically the conclusion that my aunt like led me to basically is like, there, you can't do anything. Like, mm-hmm. don't, do not cancel your trip because like, if, if she had like survived and was like needing like round the clock care, like mm-hmm. that would be, that would be a different matter. That would be like, we need you here. Mm-hmm. But she was like, you being here is not actually fixing anything. Like go have a week in New Zealand with your boyfriend yeah, yeah for your own mental health. And then, and then come back and we can still deal with the aftermath. And so I, and so I did that and it was good, um, to be out of, to be very far removed from like the situation. Mm -hmm. Nice to be staying with him. I did a lot, I did a lot of stuff, uh, with him. Like my, I don't know if you know RuPaul's Drag Race at all, but one of the, uh, contestants on RuPaul's Drag Race, Bianca Del Rio was performing in New Zealand, in Christchurch, New Zealand, where I was. And my mom had bought me tickets to go see the show. And so I did that. And I, uh, also my mom loves skydiving. And so I went skydiving in New Zealand, kind of like in her honor. Um, it, but it was a weird conversation when they, when the skydiving instructors were like, so why are you doing this? And I was like, well, my mom died last week. Um, <laughs> and they were like, oh, shit. Really cool. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, it was good to get away and experience that and to be with my boyfriend at the time and to take a moment. But it was also just full of crying. <laughs> like, it was just like, 
we went on we went on a long hike and then I and I cried like at night I cried and like he was a trooper he put up with it and like mm-hmm. really very comforting but it was it was even with all the distractions of being halfway around the world in a brand new place it was still very tough and then I came yeah, back yeah. home luckily I my employers at the time were really great about everything and they allowed me to take time off and family and friends were still staying with us and everybody was making us food. And, and, you know, I felt very cared for by our community, our communities, like generally, like our neighborhood is really tight. Mm -hmm. And also like the school that my mom taught at that, like both me and my sister attended very tight, my family, very tight. So that was comforting and then, on the, and then on the other hand, kind of exhausting because I, I love that they were there for us and I felt very, very supportive. But also there were times when other people's needs and like your needs or my needs were kind of at exact opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like my cousins would like call me and say like, how are you doing? Like, do you want to talk about this? And I was like, I absolutely do not want to talk about this. I want to put this in a box and shove it in the back of my head. Um, and I do not want to even think, I, I want to have no thoughts past my brain. Like nothing today, nothing today. And they were like, oh, okay. I mean, I, I really want to like share stories and like remembrances. And I'm like, I do not want to do that right now. And it's hard when you've, when you've all lost someone who's so important to you. So it's like me and my sister lost my mom and Julie lost her partner and my aunts and uncles lost their sister. Um, my cousins lost their aunt. My really good family friends lost like one of their best friends. And so everyone was like dealing, was like dealing with it and everyone was trying to be there for each other. And for the most part, it was wonderful and helpful. But there were occasions when we just needed completely different things and it was it was just a, it was an interesting situation to kind of navigate. Where yeah. Like, I, sorry, go on. Sorry, I was just going to ask like how did how did you navigate that? Like how in those moments like how do you uh, balance these different needs? Um. Well, for the for the most part, my family was very understanding, and that sometimes I just didn't want to talk about it, didn't want to think about it, and so they would kind of like take that as a cue to kind of. I feel like there's there's privilege in in losing your mom instead of losing your aunt in like in a weird way, you know. In in that way, like my feelings were kind of like the ones that were in the center of the conversation more than theirs, yeah. um, which, which uh, feels weird to say. For a lot of it, um, I would they would be like, "I really want to share stories. Do you want to do that?" And I would say, "No." Um, uh, and they would respect that and be like, okay, like, let me know when you want to talk about this, that, the other. But there were some times when I sucked it up, taking concessions and like, and like putting other people first and like doing what needed to be done so that they felt supported. And like, it was a definite, definitely a balancing act between, between managing other people's feelings and managing your own, basically. That makes perfect sense. And like it, Sounds like your family has very healthy boundaries and they're very good at respecting each other's needs. So that's just absolutely amazing. <laughs> it, was definitely, it was definitely helpful. Sometimes I feel like boundaries aren't that great. And then, oh my God, <laughs> this is, Sorry. I mean, it, it, no, it is, it is great, but it's like, at the same, sometimes my, uh, it got especially bad like with my dad mm-hmm. because my dad, 
because like he and my mom got divorced when I was little and like they had a very they had a very strange relationship because of that they were kind of they were kind of fighting at the time when she passed and so like I know that he felt like guilty and weird and yada 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 but like there were pushes from him to kind of like be back to normal almost or like be okay or at least it felt like that to me and my sister and so there were definitely times when he would just say something and me and my sister would just like kind of like feel like we needed to explode and just and just be like no like we're like we're dealing with something very traumatic here you don't get to tell us to like go back to normal right now but other than that I feel like uh for the most part boundaries were like without even having to say anything boundaries were like pretty easily respected and navigated but like and he and after and after like I started crying at him he said something and I started crying and then he was like oh shit I fucked up um and (laughs) to comfort us (laughs) Um, but it was it was kind of a an interesting couple weeks directly following with my father yeah yeah did those things get uh, resolved after enough like conversations and time? You know, somewhat. Um, somewhat. Yes, uh, and also like the healing process began more in earnest, and like after a couple of weeks, it was like easier mm-hmm. to empathize, I guess, with where he was coming from, mm-hmm. and also he like learned enough about how we would react to things that he was like, you know, oh, <laughs> like he can be taught. Yeah, he can <laughs> be taught. He can learn. He's the learning. Dog. <laughs> the men, the men folk can learn, um, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and that my last two questions. So I, I want to start with the slightly heavier one. So, like, what does grief mean to you? Mm. Um, I was telling my friend recently who just lost someone uh, that I told her that grief is a full time job. And I truly believe that grief is something that takes so much time. It takes so much energy. And for me, at least a lot of it was thinking about things that she would miss and not necessarily like big life events. Like those, mm-hmm. were, those two, sorry, I'm going to start crying, but <laughs> um, those two, like I was like, oh, she's like never going to see me get married or she's never going to see me you know, have a kid or, or like, she'll never be a grandma or, or, you know, anything that I do with my life, she's not going to see. But then it was also thoughts like she's never, she'll never get to hear me actually like be able to play a song on the guitar. She won't, she never got to read that book that I got her for Christmas. Like, like all the like little insignificant beautiful parts of life were like having pancakes on Sunday that like you you take for granted in a way and just realizing that not only is that person never going to experience that for themselves but you're never gonna have the opportunity to experience that with them again and so that was that was something um that grief definitely meant to me is 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 a just like the the perpetuity of it all and then be the the realizations of the little things that would be missed I read when I was dealing with all of this like when it was very fresh and new 
this little analogy called like the box and the button that I thought was very apt, um, which is, hi, Dee Dee. My cat has come and she might jump up. But anyway, the box and the button. But basically, mm-hmm. there's this box and there's this button and there's a ball in the box. And when you first lose someone, the ball is so big and the box is so small that the ball cannot go anywhere without pressing the button. And the button mm-hmm. is like pain, 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 pain. And then as time goes on, the box starts getting bigger, the ball starts getting smaller, and it begins to bounce around the box. And so it still hits the button, and it's not any less painful, but it's just less frequent. And that's how it is going to be for the rest of your life, basically, is you're always going to have this box, and there's always going to be this ball and this button. And over time, the ball will keep getting smaller, And the number of times that it hits the button and you experience the pain will be less and less frequent. But when it does, it's never going to hurt any less. That's how I sort of conceive of grief right now is it's never going to get better, but it Mm -hmm. does get easier. I absolutely love that analogy. I've never heard it before. And that's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. It definitely helped me to sort of like think about it in in those terms. And then my last question is, so when you have some time to yourself, what do you do to be happy? Like, what does that look like and feel like and sound like for you? For me, it really, a lot of it really means hanging out with the people that I love um, Mm -hmm. and being, and being with them and being to just share time and space and words and feelings and just uh, be around them. That's number one, basically. And that's hard with COVID. And so uh, when I can't do that uh, and I can't hang out with my friends, I often turn to art. I'll play guitar. I'll draw something. I'll paint something to kind of center and and calm my brain. Um, And then also I would like to give a shout out to just real good old fashioned shitty, shitty TV. Um, <laughs> that's like like not high up on the list but like sometimes like you just need to watch an episode of Shit's Creek and and it feels like a little bit that is not shitty TV <laughs> <laughs> no not I love me some David <laughs> and Patrick exactly exactly like not shitty, not shitty TV but just like when when friends aren't there and when you're too tired yeah. to do the art sometimes you know watching other people live lives fictional characters live lives it can be fun this guitar um it means a lot to me uh it was given to me by my mother um the month before she passed and it was just something it was something that i had i didn't grow up playing an instrument which was like one of her biggest regrets for me is that she never like had me and my sister like learn to play an instrument because it was too it was too difficult to like schedule but then I like watched the episode of The Office where Dwight and Andy are playing Country Roads and like yeah. sort of Aaron. I don't know if you know it. Yeah. But I was like, I really want to learn how to play guitar now. And so I like talked to her about it and she was like, I'm going to get you a guitar and I'm going to pay for lessons. And this was it. And we went and we bought it. And it was a really wonderful, special day. Um, and it sucks that like she was never able to actually hear me because now I've gotten like pretty okay at it. And I'm like, I'm learning different styles. I'm currently in a Spanish style classical guitar class. Um, But it's something that I enjoy doing that I can just kind of like zone out and play now. Um, It's a new skill that I've developed and it's also a good way for me to 
step away from kind of like perfectionistic tendencies that I have. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm very much so a perfectionist. And um, with playing any instrument, you have to be okay with messing up for a while before you get good. And so I think that that's been a really helpful thing for me to practice daily and to like learn that like it's a like it's a you can still like share what you're doing with people even if it's not perfect yet yeah um, and so that's that's my thing with it it's, it's a helpful reminder and a good connection to my mom and a, and a fun thing to do I love that and I don't mean to put you on the spot but since you brought out a guitar like would you be willing to play <laughs> us a little something I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's gonna if it's gonna translate well to the to the zoom but since um, I mentioned the the John Denver thing. I can just do strumming from that. Okay. I hope it's, I hope it's tuned. Sorry. One second. This is awkward. No, no, you're fine. Give me a, give me a second. (laughs) It's me. I'm putting you on the spot. (laughs) This is not what I'm meant to play. There we go. Now I'm starting. Then we can go. Oh my God, that was so good. I love that. Thank you. (laughs) It's fun. It's a good time. (laughs) Maria's story touched on some things I want to dig into a bit further. Setting boundaries and caring for ourselves and others, especially for people who are experiencing grief for the first time. To do that, I called up Bonnie Wheeler. Bonnie is a recently retired licensed counselor for the state of Michigan and licensed social worker with more than 40 years of professional experience. She specializes in grief and loss and worked with young people specifically for the last 15 years. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the interview that that you heard with Maria. Can you give me some of your initial thoughts about the interview? My initial thoughts were how lucky she was to have so much family that was able to be around for her. And her adjustment is... While she still has moments where it hurts and it hurts just the same, it's less frequent. I think she's done a wonderful job of integrating that grief into her lo- into her life. Yeah, that's those are my initial. Yeah, yes. I wanted to get your thoughts on just uh, the act of compartmentalizing things, right? So when Maria experienced this loss. Uh, immediately, you know, she said that she had a trip to to New Zealand, and you uh-huh. know, and, and she took the trip, and her family encouraged her to to take that trip, right? And on the trip is where she actually got to process what was happening to her, what had just happened to her. So, how how do we compartmentalize these things, and how important is that to our process of grief? Oh, I think it's very important, and it's very typical, uh, partially because the focus right away. And she exemplified it really well. The focus in immediately when someone has passed away is what happened. How did all this go down? There are very vivid memories of, of the events around her mother's actual death. I think early on we go a little bit numb so that we can do 
the things that need to be done. We can be gracious when people hand us a get the 40th casserole. So there's a numbness that comes on with your emotions early on. And then when you get that time finally to breathe and listen to your yourself and not try and be taking care of other people or making the plans or looking up the insurance, whatever it is, that's when you can begin to feel what's lost. Speaking of family and the conversations that Maria was having with everybody, uh, one thing that, that stuck out to me was boundaries. So could you break down how Maria was setting healthy boundaries in this episode? Oh, I just loved that part of <laughs> that she was able to do that because people do want, there's a mix of what they want. And she articulated it actually very well when she's talking about how everybody lost someone, but she lost her mother. Hmm. And other than the person who well, even including the person who lost their partner. So her setting that boundary that, no, I'm not going to take care of you. I'm taking care of me, and you can help me take care of me by not talking to not making me go there right now. Uh, and I thought it was a, a great strength of hers that she said, you know, so I'll let you know when I'm ready. For the people, you know, or the young people who are listening to this and who are very you know, new to, to grief or the act of setting boundaries, do you have any advice on how people can effectively set boundaries for themselves? I think number one would be to pay attention to your own emotions when somebody is pushing that and even reminding oneself that it's really okay to set a boundary when it's about your own self-care especially around grief, what I say more frequently than anything else to people is be really gentle with yourself because you may feel like you've got this, but you're fragile. And if you're in your community and you say, I'm grieving now in my own way and I need to do that, um, but thank you for the offer. You know, you can, we can be gracious in our grief and I'll let you know, like, like Maria... Maria did, saying, I'll let you know when, and then do that. The other place you set boundaries is where people tell you how you should be feeling. Because in grief, you get to feel how you feel. Before we let you, we let you go, and this has been uh, amazing, I would, would just love it if you had any, um, any closing thoughts or, or, or any advice you would like to give to uh, those young listeners who we have joining us um, at The Science of Grief? Oh, wow. Actually, one of the things that really struck me and I appreciated so much about the, the two interviews that uh, I listened to with Joshua and Maria is both of them used their creative outlets to help them cope, to help them express themselves and I, talking about your feelings and, and emotions is really a powerful thing. But we do not feel feelings just verbally. We feel them, you know, sensually, lot, lots of different ways. So using the creative out, outlets and talking to people who know you and support you 
uh, but also no grief themselves because they'll get it in a different way. So those are the things I think. And, of course, just being gentle with yourself. It's, it's hard and it's deep. And it's an additional challenge when you're, you're young and you don't know who else knows what this feels like. It feels at first like you're going to feel that way forever because those waves of grief are very close together. But as you move out from it, the waves get further and further apart and you realize you're going to feel that way every now and then. And to be gentle with yourself when you do. Mm, thank you for that. I think that you have you know, articulated uh, perfectly a lot of, of the purpose of the Science of Grief podcast. And, and uh, one of those purposes is to create community and to give young adults, you know, some insight into the world of, of grief that other people are inside of and experiencing as as well. So thank you for that, Bonnie Wheeler. It has been a pleasure speaking with you, and we look forward to speaking with you more um, in the future. I hope so. I've enjoyed it very much, and I look forward to speaking with you, and thank you for having me. As you heard from Maria La Cicero, and in the last episode with Aaron Birch, art and music are really helpful forms of therapy. So we're going to end our episode with a performance for you to listen to and reflect on. This one is from Rodney Whitaker, a jazz musician, double bass player, and educator. It's called Robert's Lament. episode helpful and want to hear more, subscribe. And if you know someone who might find this episode beneficial, please share it with them. A reminder, this podcast is not a substitute for professional help. If you have a mental health concern and need someone to talk to, please contact a mental health professional or your doctor. Help is available. If you are suicidal or in a suicidal crisis or emotional distress, please call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That number, 1-800-273-8255. This episode was produced by me, Natasha T. Miller, Patrick Vaughn, Holly Ann Stewart, our executive producer, David Lyons, and our editor, David Weinberg. Original music by Jordan Davis. The end music was written and performed by Rodney Whitaker with sound design and additional music by Sam Bobian. With additional production support from Shamin Sultana, Kaylin Higgins, Aaron Appleby, Maida Stangy, and Antoine Scott. 
The Science of Grief podcast is a collaboration between Science Gallery Detroit and WDET, Detroit's NPR station, and is supported by the Children's Foundation of Michigan, MSU-FCU, and Science Sandbox.